What does it mean when it's a bad decision? So, how do we start? Hi, this is Aga and Łukasz, and this is Catching the Next Wave podcast, where we discuss the future of design. And much more. If you don't know what to do, come and ask Michelle Florendo, our guest today. Michelle is a career and executive coach for type A professionals. For many years now, she leads workshops showing how to use the principles of decision engineering to craft careers that energize people. Michelle is known for her analytical approach to coaching, with Bachelor in Management Science and Engineering from Stanford University and a Master degree from US Berkeley, Haas School of Business, Michelle uses a blend of decision engineering, design thinking and lean startup principles to help her clients map their path forward. She's also a great public speaker, writer and soon to be a podcaster. And the two of us met at an amazing program called Ship It Sprint, which is all about decision making and prioritizing, isn't it? Michelle, thank you for making the time to talk to us today. It's absolutely great to have you with us. Thanks for having me here. So, first of all, nice to meet you. I haven't met you before. <laughs> Good to meet you too. <laughs> so let me start with a question that first came to my head. So hmm. if you are in the coaching business, helping people take better decisions, do we really need engineering and design thinking and lean startup to take good decisions? Well, I mean, it depends on the type of decision, right? Like there are little decisions that we make every day. Like, what am I going to eat for dinner? What do I want to do this evening? And then there are also sometimes bigger life decisions. Like, where do I want to take my career next? Do I want to have kids? When? Uh, do I want to move across the country to be with my partner? There are decisions of different scale. And I found that when people are approaching very messy, complex decisions, it can be useful to have frameworks or structures to help them sift through mm -hmm. that. Yeah, that makes sense. Let me check something. I think we busted off Seth Godin when he was on the podcast. We're talking about decision making. I have a hypothesis that the amount of thinking upfront we should put into the decision, so before we actually take one, somehow is related to the cost of taking the wrong one. Mm. So complication is one thing. But how easy it is to recover if it turns out to be a bad choice. Does it make sense to you? I think that that's a pretty good rule of thumb. People do consider taking decisions as a hard process, but is it really hard? It depends on the people. And like I said, depends on the decision. Like I've definitely met people who are perfectly comfortable with decisions big and small, however they may make it. Either they think it through, they follow their gut, follow their heart. And then I've also met people who, when they find out what it is that I do, will start just this outpouring of, oh my gosh, can you teach me how to make better decisions? I'm horrible at it. I hate making decisions. And so I think there is a subset of the population who may find it challenging. And I think what's interesting is that, or at least like in the US, 
learning how to make decisions is not really part of education. Like we learn math and science and reading and writing, but not necessarily how to make decisions. And yet the way that technology has unfolded, we have so much more choice, so many more options and access to so much more information that sometimes I've found that people have challenges sifting through all of that. How did you get into decision engineering yourself? And how come that there is actually a study of it? To be completely honest, I didn't know that decision engineering was a thing until I got to college. And I think most people I encounter don't realize that there is a field called decision engineering until I mention it. How did I get into this field? Honestly, I feel like I stumbled into it. When I started university, I knew I did want to be an engineer. I love solving problems, love math and science. And as I was studying the different disciplines like chemical engineering, mechanical engineering, computer science and engineering, someone told me about this department at Stanford that at the time was named management science and engineering. And they said it was all about the engineering of efficiency. Hmm. I thought that was intriguing. And as I started taking the required courses in that department, I learned about a subset of that division called decision engineering, which was all about the study of making optimal decision, which I found fascinating because I feel like we make decisions every day. It's also a very important part of business as well. And that's actually what the discipline is. It's very much entrenched in the academic and corporate world around how to optimize decision-making in the face of uncertainty. Just a side question. Did you come across a person called Tom Gilb? No, I did not. Okay, I will send you some pointers. Yeah. (laughs) When you talk about decision engineering, it sounds like this is a very scientific approach. And yet there is a big emotional element into decision-taking. My academic background is in decision engineering, which led me to start my career professionally as a management consultant. So using that optimal decision-making skill set to help companies make the best decisions for themselves. But what I found was because like a lot of friends became intrigued by, oh, how I apply this to my life or to some of these big personal decisions that I'm making, I saw that On one hand, there are definitely some limitations to decision engineering when applied to personal decision-making, but there's also some useful fundamental principles that could help people take some of the stress out of it or even achieve more clarity in their decision-making. And you're right, the piece that makes the difference between corporate business decisions and personal decisions is that emotional piece. And how does it influence that decisions? I feel like it depends on the emotion. I was giving a talk at Stanford's D school a couple months ago on decision-making. And before I launched into that talk, I actually had the audience think about what was a pressing decision they needed to make on the horizon. And then to write down what are some of the feelings or emotions that came up. And the list was really interesting. I think the most frequently cited emotions were worry, anxiety, and stress, nervousness, 
And then also like conflicted, confused, hesitance, discomfort, burden, maybe a little bit of excitement, but there's just a lot there. And I think that stress or some of those negative emotions, fear sometimes come up at the intersection of having to face uncertainty, but also wanting to make the best decision. And how does it come together? Can it come together? I think they can. Like oftentimes when I see people experience what could be perceived as negative emotions in the decision-making process, sometimes the gut reaction is to move into avoidance or hesitance. Oh, this doesn't feel good. I'm a little stressed. I, I don't want to deal with it. But I find that, again, taking an engineering lens and trying to get at what is the data Emotions can be a valuable source of data, just as much as our cognitive assessment of things. And so if we're feeling fear or anxiety about something, it can be useful to take a step back and observe, where's that coming from? Why is that coming up? Is it because there is a particular objective that we have that we don't think we may be able to deliver on? Is it because we feel constrained in our options? And now I'm getting into some of the decision engineering stuff around the components of any decision. So sometimes when emotion comes up, we can have one of two reactions. One is either to let it completely flood us and wash over us, and then it sometimes clouds our judgment. And the other sometimes is to completely distance ourselves from the emotion and try to just live in the cognitive. But I find that the more we can get curious about what is the emotion that's coming up and what is it telling us about our process, the more useful it can become in moving forward with mm -hmm. a good decision. Mm -hmm. Is it possible to start liking taking decisions? I hope so. I would say that my entire life mission is to be able to work with people who find decision-making either anxiety-inducing or stressful and get them to see that decision-making can actually be a really empowering thing if we learn how to identify it and we feel equipped to be able to move through it confidently. Mm -hmm. But I find that sometimes we just haven't been given the tools to do that. Does your curiosity and all professional endeavors stretch also beyond the point of decision-taking, just following through and then later owning that choices. Can you tell me more about that? When I'm thinking about taking a decision, taking is a mm -hmm. something that lasts longer or shorter, but one day the decision mm -hmm. is taken one way or another. And then there is the issue of following through. I'm going to start going to the gym or running. That would be the easy ones. But quite often I see, especially in the business context, that the decision is taken, it's even thought through, mm -hmm. but it's difficult to imagine all the consequences. Mm. And when they materialize, some organizations or part have a tendency of being magically drawn to the old ways. Mm. So you're shining a light on a very important concept to understand about decisions. And one that sometimes is clouded by the urgency of the big decision at hand. And that's, there is always an opportunity to make a new decision whenever 
any of the components of a decision change. Mm -hmm. So I'll back up a little bit. Every single decision has three components. There are your objectives. That's like, what is it that you want to achieve in the outcome? There are your options. What is it that you're choosing among? And then there's the information that you have on how the two intersect. And like you said, sometimes companies or individuals will have to make a decision in the face of uncertainty. And then later on, there'll be consequences or things will play out. You'll have more information. And so when any of those components change, there is an opportunity to make a new decision. And it's all about like, how is it that you can continue to make decisions well that are aligned with the objectives that you had? I also think it's interesting that you mentioned, yes, yeah, sometimes we can make a decision and then there's another step of actually following through. I think one of my podcast episodes is actually an interview with someone who was right in the midst of that. Like he knew that he was going to switch vendors in his business. And yet something was keeping him from actually following through on all of the steps he needed to do Mm -hmm. to do that. What was interesting is that, again, there was an emotional piece that had come up. I think it was fear of how his old vendor was going to react or fear that the old vendor was going to call and ask like, what's going on? Accuse him of being disloyal and loyalty was like a very important value of his. I think like the key there is just to recognize that life is the sum of the decisions we make, right? It's never, we make one decision and then we're done and life is great afterwards. Yay. I think the other piece is recognizing that the quality of a decision is separate and distinct from the quality of the outcome. And I think we need to understand that to be able to have the resilience to move forward with future decisions. So for example, like you said, a business may make a decision in the face of uncertainty. And then, you know, there may be a consequence that is not so great according to their objectives. It may not necessarily mean that that was a bad decision though, because again, if you're making the best decision you can with the information you have, There's the decision piece, which is the process, and then there's the outcome. And sometimes that outcome is driven by something that's completely out of our control. Mm -hmm. Yet sometimes if people feel like the outcome of the decision is directly reflective of them, the quality of their decision, they may do some of that backtracking or experience regret or whatever it may be, instead of continuing to look forward. And seeing, oh, well, you know, that was an uncertainty, played out, was out of my control. What is the next decision that I can make? So if I was to paraphrase what you just said, it would be that if you convince me that decision taking, is it taking or making, by the way? <laughs> Free English lesson. <laughs> uh, I usually use the phrase decision making. Right. So if you convince me that it is easy to make a decision, So from that, we can conclude that I can always make another decision if the first one turns out in hindsight not to be so great. Then this whole area around being worried if it was a good decision or not, or the consequences or feeling regret, that will be mitigated just with this learning one thing. Just, you know, make it comfortable to make those decisions and then make them more often instead of one big one because it was so difficult. 
if it's easy and I can make it more frequently, then I can just steer by making decisions all the time and then anxiety goes away. At least to an extent. Yeah, extent. yeah, yeah of course. Like, oh. The gut reaction, fear and anxiety usually is still there. But like you said, if we can understand where is our agency at any given moment, it becomes a lot more, like I said, empowering, mm -hmm. right? Whereas if we feel like, oh, the outcome and you know who I am as a decision maker and the quality of my decision is wrapped up in this thing that we cannot control, it becomes a lot more stressful. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that this emotional piece, it sort of pops up when you are taking personal decisions. But I think that managers who, who's the only job is to take decisions, they also face emotions. They are afraid of losing face. They are afraid of feeling ashamed. They don't mm -hmm. want to lose power based on a decision. There's a lot of emotional undercurrent going on in any business decision taking too, right? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think I just like to sometimes delineate between business and corporate decisions and personal decisions because in the corporate world, it can be a little bit more clear cut around measurement of outcomes, right? Because there often are more measurable key performance indicators, whether it's sales, profit, whatever it may be. Whereas in the personal decision making, not only are objectives and outcomes multifaceted, they're often not very measurable, but you're right. Emotions do pop up in both. They make them both a little bit mm -hmm. messy. Mm -hmm. Most of the things we do in life is to take decisions, right? Having this conversation was a decision on our side, was a decision on your side. Every question. Every single thing is a decision. And particularly today, we are facing this terror of choice on the one hand, and on the other hand, the fear of missing out. Mm. And it puts people in a terrible, terrible place where they get almost paralyzed because they don't know what to choose. There's a psychology professor from Swarthmore College who actually happens to live in my neighborhood now. <laughs> <laughs> He's a visiting professor at UC Berkeley now who wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice. And it's all about what you just described, this explosion of choice and how on one hand, we've been led to believe that more choice is better and yet having more choice and the expectation that we need to make the best choice possible leads to things like fear of missing out and a reduced level of happiness than if we were to take a different mindset. And I think his recommendation in the book is useful in that he says that if we adopt this mindset of maximizing, so maximizer mindset where we have to get the best thing, we automatically will fall victim to fear of missing out because the only way that we can know if we achieved the best choice is to keep looking back at all of the other options, which ultimately reduces our satisfaction with the choice we ended up going with. And he recommends adopting something he's dubbed the satisficer mindset, which is really defining 
you know, what is it that we want? What is good enough? And as soon as we find a choice that satisfies that, to go with it and to not look back. I think it's a great concept. It's also easier said than done, Mm -hmm. of course. I think especially here in the U.S., there is so much language about like more, better, maximization, that even the word satisficing or just satisfied doesn't seem appealing. I feel like there probably is some some like marketing maneuvering that can be done <laughs> to get that concept to land with people better. But sometimes the way that I'll frame it to people is, is it more important to chase happiness or to be happy? So the person I mentioned before, Tom Gilb, I'm following him for mm. quite a few years. And mm. when you said about this good enough level, I found an angle there. So basically every choice is kind of multifaceted. So it will impact a number of things. And the way Mm -hmm. I try to lead my clients into thinking about the level good enough is basically there are two approaches and I, most of the time I mentioned them both, but you can choose which one will resonate better. One is that a perfect solution, you know, like 100% satisfying is probably infinitely expensive, Mm. both in time and in money. Mm -hmm. This thing will never break. You really mean never ever that's going to be expensive. That's one angle. And it normally, it's not a linear. It goes up exponentially. So in any field, if on any measurement on axis, you are going for the world record these days, you have to have really deep pockets. So you want to be as early on this curve as possible, because otherwise maybe you will invest and you wouldn't see return on that investment. And the other angle is about satisfiers and dissatisfiers. This works better with service companies. Mm. If they have to satisfy a number of, let's take the easy example, if it's the user satisfaction and it has to be, you know, fast and easy to use and easy to learn. It doesn't make sense to have you know, suppose you have five of those aspects or facets or KPIs or whatnot, or measurements. If you have one sky high and the other, it's even worse, right? If you have like four of them really good and one is below expectations, actively demotivating your customers, they're gonna leave. So that's for me, basically the angle of, let's try to find, you know, the satisfying level, Mm. let's get all of them on a level good enough so you are not annoying anyone you are not distracting your clients stakeholders bosses c-level people whoever let's make sure they are not unhappy with you any of them and then start shifting them all to the positive side so let me jump on this so these satisfiers are the things that make people not want to do something anymore so like the mm. customer is leaving the company because the company is basically making them feel annoyed all the time. But the, Death by a thousand cuts. Yeah, perfect metaphor. But once you have them delivered on a satisfying level, yeah. which doesn't mean that it's like the best in the world, mm-hmm. then you can choose your focus. Right. You can say, I'm going to be the best company or the best person in this. And there is where you invest. Mm. This is the place where you chase the impossible and where you focus. The good thing, and this is again a decision, is to choose the right thing to focus on because a lot of companies 
don't quite do that. (laughs) But once you have this, uh, it's a very easy mechanism for both knowing what to do and also knowing what not to do. That brings me to this thing that bottom line of all the decisions, good decisions, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you need to have your priorities straight. Yeah. I mean, like everything that you just talked about reminded me of how, again, sometimes society leads us to believe that we can get everything that we want, which one makes a baseline assumption that we know what we want. (laughs) Oh yeah, that's a big one. And then that it could be achieved (laughs) that we get everything we want, which are both fallacies, right? And when I talk about how oftentimes people feel like they haven't been taught how to make a good decision. The first step is just articulating what is it that's important, what matters, right? The example that you gave was really great because it demonstrates like in a business setting, especially in service-based businesses, one of the things that is important is to satisfy the customer. If you don't do that, you don't have a business. And that entire discussion also made me think about how we also have to be clear about what are the trade-offs we are willing to make. And so in a service-based business, the trade-off of doing something at the expense of pissing off the customer is not a trade-off that they would be willing (laughs) to make because it'd be disastrous for their bottom line, (laughs) disastrous for their sales. But in some other businesses, maybe doing something at the expense of pissing off a subset of their customers might be something that they'd be willing Mm -hmm. to do. And so I think... You're right in the very first steps in making good decisions is being able to one, articulate what matters and two, identify what are the trade-offs that you are or are not Mm -hmm. willing to make. There is another aspect to it. And I think it was mentioned by one of our guests in the previous season, Clara, is that sometimes the priorities change. Mm -hmm. So if you have a trade-off between being a great mom to your kids but also being a successful professional. Sometimes you choose the family over the job and sometimes you choose job over the family. Mm -hmm. And what I've noticed is that often people either try to fool themselves into believing that they can have both or they choose one and they are super unhappy about the other. Not understanding that those priorities, they are fluid in a way. So they are both really important things, but the weight of each one of them changes in time or changes with the circumstances. Mm -hmm. Is it a problem or am I like just rambling here? (laughs) It's definitely something I've seen. And so I often work with clients who are at a crossroads in their career because all of a sudden they may have been doing whatever they're doing for 10, 15, 20 years and are really successful. And I'm putting that in air quotes, successful at it, but are deeply unhappy. And they're wondering what happened because at some point in time, this was their dream job. And it's, it's exactly that. Like you said, things can change. Our objectives can change. Our options can change. The information we have can all change. And the more that we can recognize again, that that is a fact of life, things change, and also see that it's an opportunity to make new decisions, the more we can accept that without so much of the suffering. I think a lot of the 
the stress or the suffering that comes about is from us being attached to a certain belief or sometimes in coaching work, we call it narratives of how the world should be working that is in you know direct conflict with reality mm-hmm. or what's happening. Before people meet you, mm-hmm. how do they make decisions? Because you said we have problems articulating what we need. Mm-hmm. We let our emotions get the better of us, better of us and cloud both the decision making process and the follow up and looking back at this. Yet somehow there is this natural unlearned not not unlearned but uh, and not natural either <laughs> yeah not, if you are not if people are not making decisions in a way that you teach how do they do this it's funny because i feel like someone recently had recapped their decision making process to me and then someone told her about me and she's like oh my gosh so a little bit of a caveat i will say that I find that people will tap into like three different, I'll call them maybe like centers of intelligence, whether it's thinking through things, following their heart or their emotions or trusting their gut, their intuition. I tend to work with a lot of people who are very cognitive. So they're in their heads. And so usually when I encounter someone like that, the process may be they have a decision, they think about all the things. So all the things being, you know, like, what are the different things that could play out? What are the different options I have? Maybe what are the things that I want? And there'll be a lot of stuff. And then they get into analysis paralysis Mm -hmm. plus some sort of emotion. And then there's a bunch of avoidance. And then maybe if there is some sort of deadline or urgency, they'll just pick and go with it and then agonize and then start the entire process again. (laughs) (laughs) I recognize that. <laughs> yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. 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 Hmm. But that's just one way that I've heard. Again, people, depending on what like center of intelligence they're most comfortable with, have different processes. Mm-hmm. But the people who benefit most from the work that I do, which tends to be applying structure to the process, are the ones who like to think about it a lot in all of the different ways and then get overwhelmed by all of the different things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now when you gave the answer, I now realize that that wasn't a good question because I think implicitly I was thinking about people that you mentioned who are trying to do this, you know, on a rational level. Because when I think about the chief marketing of this last startup I was involved with, he would just go, let's do this. He seemed to be happy with his choices. The decision-making for him looked easy, but when you ask him why this, he would answer, let's do this. But why? Let's do this. So apparently, I think he was comfortable in following his gut. Yes. Decision-maker. Yeah. Yeah. Both of us, we are also the thinkers in decision-taking, at least most of the time. What I've noticed with myself is that there is a struggle often between the a reasonable choice that seems clear from the list of pros and cons. And then there is the gut feeling, which tells me a different thing. So I have this struggle every now and then. Of course, it comes with big decisions, not small decisions. And I remember myself 
taking the decision based on the cognitive process, thinking, okay, this is more reasonable to do this, mm-hmm. sort of ignoring the emotional aspect. And more often than not, it was a wrong decision. And then my question to myself was whether it was objectively a wrong decision or whether I was unhappy with it because I didn't listen to my gut feeling. <laughs> catch 22, right? Yeah, catch 22 <laughs> in the most ridiculous way. So wait, can I interject? Sure. So tell me more about like, what does it mean when it's a bad decision? That's a very good question. I can think of one. So I'm a freelancer like yourself. I was offered a project that sounded really interesting, but I had to go on employment. So I liked the project. I didn't like the idea of getting into a structure and therefore facing all the politics that was going on around this project. The other thing was that the person who proposed the project, I didn't trust her. Mm. But the person who was convincing me to take the project, I trusted that person a lot. So... It was a struggle between my willingness to do this particular project, which was super aligned with my values and with my intrinsic need not to work for the corporate world, but do more social stuff. Mm-hmm. I knew that the person who was convincing me to do it was a good person and it would have been, and it was a pleasure to work with him. But on the other hand, I knew that the risk of this project draining me completely, which happened, was based on the two other facts, the employment, where I cannot have my position as an independent designer, Mm -hmm. and also based on my gut feeling that this person who was hiring me was promising too much, and I sort of knew that she wouldn't deliver, Mm -hmm. which also happened. What made it a bad decision? What made it a bad decision? That's a very good question. Because I'm hearing it was a bad outcome. It was a bad outcome. Okay, so what was the bad decision? I took it for the wrong reasons. So you mean that your gut was telling you that it could be wrong? That it is, and your analysis Uh was confirming the signs that it could be a bad choice. Yes, and I took it because it was playing on the emotion, huh? That was triggered by something that happened before. So, in the moment when you made the decision, did you feel like you were making the right decision? I was not sure. What makes decisions hard? is both emotion and uncertainty. And what I'm hearing was that there were elements of both. And I also want to say, like, emotions are not bad. They're just another piece of data. But there definitely was uncertainty. And the way that the uncertainty played out was not in a good way. And so what I'm hearing is, in retrospect, a wish that you had trusted another, you know, we have an itty bitty committee in our head, right? (laughs) And so what I'm hearing is that there's a desire in retrospect to have trusted one of the voices that was definitely weighing in at the time. I'd still put it out there that I don't know, or 
I wouldn't be so quick to judge that as a bad decision. Because what I'm hearing is that you did have a voice in that committee that was saying things. And sometimes things come into conflict. And of course, that's part of what makes decisions difficult. But part of what good decision-making is, is going through the process and at least acknowledging the different voices on the committee. And it may be impossible to please them all, Mm. similar to in business corporation. And the best we can do is to make a decision, given the information we have at the time, listen and acknowledge the different voices give space to the data that exists and not just the cognitive data, but the emotional and intuitive data as well, like you said, and be agile enough to identify when and how we can make new decisions in the future when we get more information on how things are playing out. Mm -hmm. And part of that agility is to have the resilience to accept and forgive ourselves for the decisions that we made Mm -hmm. in the face of Mm -hmm. uncertainty. This is what Clara mentioned in the last uh, season, right? She said like, okay, you make a decision, own it, and then you can make another one, but just that one, it was mine. Okay, maybe not the perfect. Let's move on. Mm -hmm. You made me think, Michelle, about this intuition versus cognitive thinking. Then I realized something interesting, at least to me, Maybe it's obvious for you. Let me check. I have a few clients that I also help in putting the whole structure around making decisions in the business context. Mm. And especially when we start, it is very much, I wouldn't call it scientific, but very engineering like approach. So we go through steps. We try to communicate very clearly, define what we mean by easy or fast, this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then the last step is looking at the decision to be taken or choices to be made or priorities Mm -hmm. in the context of those very precisely prescribed perspective, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing that's happening every single time is that basically we build a table at the end. Mm -hmm. And this table gives you an indicator which choices are more valuable or are better return on investment, whatever return uh, means. And it always happens that there's someone has an idea that in this table doesn't look very promising, but they have this kind of gut feelings. Yes, but the outcome of this process doesn't resonate with my gut feeling. And every time we dive into a number of those, at least one would surface a big aspect that we didn't think about. Mm-hmm. So apparently, Those people who are longer in business, they are not beginners. They do stuff like this, but not consciously. But if you try to put it out and point at it or name it, more often than not, they can do this. That's what I love about decision engineering. So I heard you just talk through building a decision matrix Mm -hmm. where you can see like what are the objectives and the options and how does each option deliver on those various objectives you have. That's what sometimes is missing for people. Mm -hmm. Again, like we can think about it, we can follow our heart, we can trust our gut, but sometimes it isn't until we can get it all like out of those different centers that we're getting signals from to somewhere where we can all see it, 
either for ourselves if we're making individual decisions or for the group if we're making group decisions, that we can start having discussions about, well, how does this shake out? And yes, what may be missing? Like when I lead people through the exercise of building their own decision matrix, we'll do the cognitive thing and fill it out. And then the last step, I'll usually actually have them stand up and step forward into this choice and tell me how does it feel or this one and how is that different? And depending on whether there's dissonance between what they're feeling and what is actually on the page, it provides, again, interesting data. Oh, so what you're feeling is different from what we're seeing here. Well, then what's missing? Like you said, and it'll serve as like some big thing that we had totally overlooked that didn't come up in the earlier discussions. And I think that's why some of these tools for just getting things out of our head or gut and onto paper or into that dialogue are so useful. Seth once said something that blew my mind, mm. or he wrote it, I think it was one of his posts. He wrote that most of the things that we face in life are choices and not decisions, that we waste our decision power on agonizing over things that are non-important, mm. that are really choices, like it doesn't matter what we choose. It doesn't matter whether I choose a black or gray shirt, but it does matter how I plan my next half a year. So sometimes we tend to spend more time thinking about the choices and less time about decisions. Mm. And there's another thing that kind of triggers me is that we think that decision is something that happens in a moment in time. And we really don't think that we can plan towards a decision, that we lose this thing that decision-taking can last. So I think first, I think you're making the distinction between decisions, which is kind of the weighing of those three components that I said, of which you know options or choices is one. And then just wading through all of the options that we have in this world. And I think it's funny when people come to me and they're like, oh yeah, I'm the type of person who agonizes over what I'm going to order at the restaurant. Like the first decision they need to make is which are the decisions that matter? Because there is something called decision fatigue where we actually have a finite reservoir of energy to use in making decisions every day. And I think that's part of why I think there's been articles written on. That's why like Mark Zuckerberg wears the same thing every day and like Steve Jobs wore the same thing every day so they wouldn't have to exhaust their decision-making reservoir on the things that didn't matter. And so, yes, I think this loops back to something we had talked about earlier around one of the bases of becoming a good decision-maker is being able to articulate, and also continually re-examine what is it that matters. Not only what is it that matters in the outcome, but what are the decisions that matter in general? So I'm going to go on a side tangent. <laughs> sure. One of my colleagues, she recently was talking about how she's agonizing about how to plan a wedding because it just seems like so much. And I told her that the most useful piece of advice I had gotten was in wedding planning to articulate what are the five things you care about, like the five decisions you really want to be on top of and like make intentionally, 
make those and then outsource the rest. And so for me, I was like, oh, okay, I care about, <laughs> I'm going to put it in this order, where I'm getting married, who I'm getting married to, because <laughs> I actually knew where I wanted to get married before I knew who I was getting married. Um, and like, you know, the nature of the ceremony, I think the colors and the fact that there would have to be a big dance floor and then everything else, don't care. Flowers, don't care. Like what type of decor, don't care. It just need to be this color. Yeah. How about your dress? Just need to be able to dance in All it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have, I have to thing, ask. Right? So, like, more... what was the place that you got married in? I wanted to get married in Memorial Church at Stanford University. It's like a huge, beautiful, like cathedral style church that does Catholic weddings. And it's actually a perk of being an alumni to be able to get married in that church. And so, I knew as soon as I found out it was an alumni perk, yes, that's where. <laughs> Didn't know who for like another 10 years or so, but knew where. <laughs> That's the thing. It's useful to articulate what are the decisions that actually matter and what can we let go of? And that's the hard part, right? And I think that's where the practice of mindfulness can be really useful in being able to navigate decisions with less stress because there's a, a certain level of being able to let go of certain things, let go of the decisions that don't matter, let go of the fact that there are parts of the outcome that we cannot control. Whereas if we really hold on to those things, again, we're just creating more stress for ourselves. Another piece of good news is that it seems that with age, it gets easier. <laughs> <laughs> and like you said, I think it's because with age, you develop that common sense around what matters and what really doesn't. Mm -hmm. It's easier to say, yeah, I don't care about this, you know, whatever. There are decisions like changing a job, buying a house, moving to another place, even choosing your holidays, which is probably fairly, I don't know if it's easy, it's easy for us. So thinking <laughs> about decisions that have a lead time that we know at a certain point it has to be made. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. So there are decisions that can be made with different lead times. And I guess the question comes up, how do we, or how should we make those decisions? You know, good decisions are ones where you have examined or at least given thought to the three different components. So again, what is it that you want? The objectives? What are your options and have you explored beyond the obvious? And then what information do you have? Like actually thinking about and assessing what information you have on how the two intersect. You know, in any situation, what I would be asking someone is, depending on what lead time you're jumping into, how is it that you are improving that process? So for example, for the podcast, I had interviewed a woman who was agonizing over the decision of what was she going to do to earn money once she moved into a tiny house, I think in the middle of New Zealand. But that decision didn't have to happen for another six to nine months. And yet it was causing her so much stress. And uh, from that perspective, it didn't seem like the things that she was doing was actually improving her process around that decision. And so it's actually better to reframe, well, what is the decision that you actually can do something about now? You can focus on that. 
And then there are some people who feel very impulsive around like, I need to make this decision now, or there's some sort of urgency that's moving them to try to rush things. And again, I would ask, it's how you're going about this leading you towards a robust process of evaluating those three things? And if the answer is yes, okay, great. If the answer is no, well, hmm, maybe we should pause and examine what's really going on. You mentioned it already before, but I would like to come back to it. It's the topic of, I would call it the midlife crisis. Hmm. So people who were going after a career, going after something that was igniting them for decades, really, suddenly they realized that maybe this path is over. Maybe they just arrived at the end and they want to switch or they they don't even realize that they want to switch. And this is again a decision, right? So how do you help these people to see their situation and understand that Again, this is a decision and a choice that they are facing. I'll say that by the time someone approaches me or gets curious about my work, they've already crossed that bridge of being in the suck, like, oh, this sucks, to, well, what can I do? So they've already crossed that bridge into identifying, well, maybe I do have some agency here. I don't know what I'm going to do but it's worth exploring what can be done. And then it's usually at that point that someone might find me or hear about my work or someone might refer them to the stuff that I do. And then at that point in time, like I said, it's interesting how simple it is to describe the fact that every decision has three components. And that's usually where I start with people. And so if they're unhappy, it's usually because something about what it is that they want is not in line with whatever's happening right now. But what is that really? What is the gap? They might just know that it all feels bad. Okay, well, why? What is it that is misaligned? What is it that you do want? We might even start with, well, how did you get here? Like, what is it that you did want that this seemed to deliver on for so long And now what has changed? So we'll have the conversation around objectives and then maybe some coaching around the emotions of it's okay that things have changed. Oh, you started down this career path because you were a go-getter and you were willing to work like crazy hours and you really wanted advancement and growth and prestige. But now that you're the father of two kids, things have changed and those things are no longer as important as being able to see your kids every night for dinner. And usually even just going through that process of helping them articulate, okay, well, what is it that I want now? And how can I be okay with the fact that it may be different from what I wanted then and I don't have to beat myself up about making bad decisions or whatever it is so that we can just focus on going forward that we then explore the options. And sometimes that can be a difficult thing, especially for people who are in the midst of a midlife crisis. The options may not be as wide open as someone who's like straight out of university. And so there's a a level of pragmatism that we discuss around like, what are the realistic options here? 
and what might be good enough. And then we'll delve into, okay, well, you know, after doing a brainstorm of what could be possible, what research needs to be done on like what can be known about whether this really is a fit and what things cannot be known and are just going to be uncertainties. And how do we, again, build the resilience to be okay with that? Hmm, this is interesting because in my own decision-making practice, I do consider the things I know, so like the things that are known, mm -hmm. but I never quite considered thinking about the things that are unknown, which is probably equally... Or unknowable. Not, or unknowable, yeah. Yeah. Which is probably equally or even more important. That's where a lot of people get stuck because that's where the fear comes from. That's where the anxiety comes from. And I think sometimes... The best way to deal with the fear that keeps us from acting or following through is to look at it, right? It's like the, you know, what are those scary noises outside in the dark? Well, let me flip a light. Oh, it's a deer. Okay. And I mean, even if it turns out that it's something that's unknowable, just knowing that, oh, this is a thing that no matter what I do, no matter how much research I do, It's like, what is the weather going to be like two weeks from now? I will not know with 100% certainty. And let me accept that, do the best that I can, and move forward. You know what else is fascinating? Michelle calls it engineering, and yet one of the very important tools and skills, if not the one, is coaching. That's a really interesting crossroad. I've been sitting on this crossroad for a while, but now I know at least I'm sitting there. <laughs> Thank you. Big insight for me. Michelle, you yourself are starting a podcast. Mm -hmm. Can you tell a little bit more about this project? Yeah. A lot of this decision-making work that I've done has really been in the context of one-to-one -one coaching or group workshops. And one piece of feedback that I keep getting over and over again from people is how can I learn more about this? Or where can I send my friend to learn more about the things that you do? And I just never really had a good answer. At some point in time, this will probably turn into a book. But again, like I'm an engineer, not necessarily a writer. And so the idea of a book is really far off. But I was actually having a conversation with one of the coaches from Alt-MBA1. And he was like, you're about to have a baby but you're very committed to sharing more about this work. And so what is it that you can do that would be easier? Like, what will you do with the tired in your, in your third trimester, which is where I'm at right now? What is it that you would love to do regardless? And I said, you know, I'd, I'd love to just talk about this stuff. And he's like, well, then talk about it and turn it into a podcast. And so shout out to Robbie Metcalf. That's what I'm doing. The name of the podcast is Ask a Decision Engineer. I'm still playing around with the format, but it's one where, at least in this first season of episodes, people can listen in to hear me answer questions about decision-making. They can also ask me questions. There's actually like a website where they can just record a message if they have a question about decision-making. Or even listen in to some sessions, like decision analysis sessions that I've done with people who were facing a sticky, messy, complex decision, and we spent half an hour untangling it. I help them identify what are the pieces that they can pull on 
these decisions are big knots to help get to a place of more clarity on how to move forward. I've heard two episodes. I had a sneak preview and I can't wait for more. What is to you the most obvious thing that should be common sense but is not? The fact that we can always make a decision. We always have choice. Even when it feels like nothing is within our control, we can choose how it is that we want to approach the situation. And I think that's something that we often forget. But if we remember, it gives us a lot of agency and empowers us to really create life the way we want it. You already recommended us one book, but if you were to recommend another one, what would it be? So aside from Paradox of Choice by Barry Schwartz, for anyone who wants to learn more about some of these frameworks, like how to construct a decision matrix, or you know the fact that there are three components to decisions, there's a pretty good primer on it. It's called Smart Choices. It's written by John Hammond, Ralph Keeney, and Howard Reifa. And again, it's more about the frameworks you can use. Doesn't say so much about the emotional side, which is why I like recommending the two as a pair. And then who knows, maybe in two years, I can recommend my own book. <laughs> oh, I'm so looking forward to uh, that I'm one. I'm looking forward to it, yes. Michelle, thank you for this conversation. This is super fun. Thank you once again and talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Catching the Next Wave podcast. We would love to hear from you on Twitter at Malka6 and at DLS6. You can find more details on www.catchingthenextwavepodcast.com. You are evil.